Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Welcome, everyone. I'm Ryan Honeyman, a partner at Lyft Economy. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Harvey. Dr. Harvey is a writer, teacher, and activist who has been long engaged in work for racial justice and white anti-racism. Her books include the New York Times bestseller, Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in Racially Unjust America, and Dear White Christians, for those still longing for racial reconciliation. Dr. Harvey has written for the New York Times, CNN, and countless other publications and is a widely sought-after public speaker. She's appeared on nationally syndicated television and radio programs, including Good Morning America and CNN's Town Hall on Racism with Sesame Street, and as a guest on National Public Radio's All Things Considered with Michael Martin and It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders. Dr. Harvey currently serves as the Associate Provost for Campus Equity and Inclusion at Drake University and is ordained in the American Baptist Churches. Dr. Harvey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. It's so good to be with you. Great to be with you too. So one of the first questions we like to ask guests is to, we heard a little bit about your background, but I'd be curious, how did you first get interested in the work you're doing today? Yeah, it's a a good question. My background's a little unusual. I would say it was in my 20s that I became very interested in the work that I am continuing to do to this point in my life. And I just turned 50. The backstory to that has to do with being raised actually in white evangelical Christianity, interestingly enough, where I grew up believing deeply that God so loves the world and that that means everybody. And also grew up in Denver, Colorado, going to Denver public schools when they were under a desegregation mandate. So we had busing, which means I experienced being a demographic racial minority in my, especially my elementary years. So my first friends at school were mostly black girls, actually, probably through fifth grade ish. And then I started to experience like most children in America, racial tracking And by high school, I was noticing, oh, my very multiracial high school, I never saw kids of color, students of color. I was in classes with other white kids. And I had some questions about that, but I didn't really have any place to take those questions. And the fast forward to this is that in college, my Christianity came together with my awareness that something was wrong having to do with race. I discovered a branch of Christian thought called liberation theology, black liberation theology in particular, when I was a college student at a white evangelical college in Southern California and found myself saying, wait, okay, God so loves the world really does mean God so loves the whole world, which means God cares about injustice. And if we're in the United States, then black liberation theologians were explaining and claiming that also means that God is black. And I went on to seminary to sort of try and understand what that meant, what it meant for me as a Christian And at seminary in New York City was challenged by students in theology, predominantly students of color who were like, that's great that you care about racial justice and God and God loving the world, but you're white. What does that mean? And I didn't have any answers in my 20s. And so spent my 20s trying to figure that out. And I'm still trying to figure that out. So that's how I came to this work today is really from that that journey that started in my early 20s. Thanks for that. Moving into, did you work in any sort of racial justice aligned movement work in your like maybe 20s or 30s or? 
I did to, to an extent, the graduate students that I was in seminary with in New York City, at that time, they were really leading on justice organizing in the institution around hiring faculty of color. So I remember kind of learning from them like, oh, organizing is something people do and you make demands and you make a big scene if you are ignored. And I will also then kind of as I was trying to wrestle with my own white racial identity in that context was challenged and invited to participate in some organizing against police brutality, which in New York City in the 90s. So I was there when Amadou Diallo was murdered by police, shot 40 times, and was involved with some of the organizing among white folks trying to show up in anti-racist ways back in the 90s. That I wouldn't claim I'm an organizer, but I learned in that space that there were things that we could do when we collaborated together and that there was a role for white folks to play. And so that's kind of when I first really got clear that sort of values that I claim that or that we claim we need to be ready and willing to live them in the world if they're actually going to be meaningful. So that was sort of early work in sort of activism as a as a graduate student who was also about to serve a church in New York City. That's excellent. And were there were there resources for white folks who wanted to get into this space or was it sort of like you just had to learn on your own? Oh my gosh. There was very little. I remember, I mean, one of the people in my life who was critically important is Episcopal priest whose name is Reverend Mary Folk. She's still an Episcopal priest in New York City, and she was a doctoral student at Union. She's she's white, and her partner, her, her spouse is black. And I remember Mary Folk saying, hey, white students, there's things we can do, and really kind of trying to mentor some of us. But there was very little, and there was some early writing on white privilege, But there was very little resourcing that was easily accessible, and there were very few recognizable activists or scholars who were sort of self-consciously naming their white racial identity while also talking about anti-racism. So, I mean, I I like it's true, and it's also kind of funny sometimes when I'm trying to help other white folks realize there's normal stuff we go through that, like, I spent a lot of time in my 20s wallowing in in white guilt and having no, no place to figure out how I was supposed to get through that. There was a little bit of resourcing, but it was nothing like we have available now. And I'm really grateful for folks who continue to sort of dig into that. But it really felt like a very isolating experience in my 20s in ways that it no longer does feel. Yeah. And in many ways, it's no longer really acceptable for white folks to be like, what should I do about racism? You know, because there's Google. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. You know, there's books. (laughs) And we didn't have Google. And we had Paul Kivel's book, Uprooting Racism, What White People Can Do, I think, is a book that was an early book that was very important to me. And it it was one of the very few ones. And it's still really excellent. But it was like, that was the book. It was almost like the Bible in my world. Like, oh, there's a person who's white who wrote this book about white people have a role in this. But that was a very not widely recognized discourse at all. The most recent book around raising white kids, how did that sort of conversation and that thinking start for you around how do you talk to white kids about this? Yeah. So from my 20s on, I really remained engaged in various forms of anti-racism, both professionally in my scholarship and, and writing, and then becoming a teacher at a college in Des Moines, Iowa, and sort of, you know, a member of a campus thinking about equity and inclusion on campus, sort of sort of doing that in my day-to-day living professionally and also personally. And then in, I wrote a book called Dear White Christians that was about, is about white Christians committed to equity and justice really need to start 
thinking about reparations as the paradigm for the way we talk about race and, and the way we talk about interracial relationships instead of what in Christianity folks do a lot of um, thinking about reconciliation, which is this sort of comes out of like beloved community thinking, which has of course a, t- a time and a place. But basically my book argued that white Christians, even us, those of us who love justice, we haven't engaged in repair for our, you know, a really our original sins of colonization and, and enslavement, which are ongoing in terms of their impact in not only communities of colors lives, but also our interracial relationships. And that book came out totally by coincidence. It came out this within a month of when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. And so what happened was I had just published this book about specifically about white people in the role of racial justice and white churches. When young people in Ferguson just rose up to lead in rebellion and activism and outrage really kind of began a reckoning that I think is still ongoing and started going, wait a second, things are th- as bad as this. And what are we, what have we been doing and how could we be this alienated and not realize it? And, and started really looking for resources and found my book. And so I began doing a lot of teaching and speaking in especially Christian communities all over the country. And every time I was in a conversation in these churches talking about white people's role in racial justice work, at some point somebody would say, okay, we're hearing this. I'm getting this. I'm thinking about this. What about our kids? <laughs> what should we be telling our kids about, about this, about racial justice? And I was like, I mean, it's embarrassing a little, Ryan, because I was like, wait a second. I have a four and a six-year-old. What am I telling my kids? And I found myself not really having answers, not only personally about what we should be doing, but then when I started looking for resources to offer folks, there was nothing. I mean, it was there was lots about the experience of Black children, children of color in school district, you know, lots of work on the impact of racism in kids of color's lives. There was very, I didn't find anything about the impact of racism in white children's lives. And so I realized that it was necessary for those of us with children in our lives, which ultimately I've come to realize is all of us, whether we're a parent or not, to actually make a conscious decision to be raising an anti-racist committed generation of young children. And so I started just making myself a little vulnerable and decided to write about both what I was doing with my kids, because I was doing some things, because I myself am committed in these ways and already was, but also realized I had some things to be more conscious about. And so I just started writing about it and eventually realized it was a book and took a deep breath because it was pretty, it's been, it was a pretty vulnerable book to write, to write about my family, but it's been really great to be in new conversations because of that. So I'm not a parenting expert at all. I know nothing about parenting. I'm just a mom, so, but I'm not a psychologist, but I, I have kids, I have white kids and I know that I have a responsibility to raise them to be anti-racist committed. So that's where the book came from. Yeah. So it's not, what's the best parenting style? It's like, all right, let's right. get past that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I for the listeners I read Dr. Harvey's book last year and during 2020 and it was super powerful. And still maybe surprisingly is one of the only I don't know how many other raising white kid type books there are out there. Like it's not like there was this plethora of choices. It just shows how important your work is to really even have a resource for people. I do have a 4 and a 6-year-old and some of the reasons why a parent might not think to talk to their kids are one, 
are they too young to like grapple with, you know, so there's part of this, like, are they even able to deal with it? So I'd love your thoughts on that. And then more broadly, there's also this idea of like not wanting to accidentally make your kids racist by talking about racism, which is actually, it's like unfounded, but I think that's a fear for some parents. So I wonder if you could speak to those. Yeah, I mean, before I speak to those, I want to really say, kind of normalize that it's not accidental and it's not unique to an individual white parent that we experience a lot of fear around how to talk to our children. I think it helps us to acknowledge that very few of us were parented or raised with anti-racist committed models. And so that doesn't say, that's not to say then we don't have a responsibility to learn those things, but it's sort of helpful. It was helpful to me to realize in my twenties, like, Oh, I'm not wallowing in white guilt because I'm a bad person. I'm wallowing because I have never seen a white person do something different. This is a legacy that we've inherited. And so, and then we can think about, okay, what kind of legacy do we want to bequeath to the next generation our namely our children and grandchildren. So with really young children, it is very common for white parents to think, Our kids are so tiny, they don't understand any of this yet. The reality is that children, babies, born into a world that is racialized, just like it's gendered, just like it's all the things that make up the human experience, babies immediately start learning how to interpret the world, how to make sense out of it. And it's true with everything. It's not just true with race, but it is also true with race. And so actually... There's just no too young because we are all living in a climate where Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum talks about racism as being smog that we're all living in, which is undeniable. It was true before 2016. It's only become more smoggy since 2016. And so our kids begin breathing that in. That's not to say that we should take a three-year-old and sit them down and say, let me talk to you about police violence against black communities. I don't, I'm not advocating that by saying we should talk about race. It is to say that we need to understand that children's minds are wired to interpret what's going on in the world around them. They notice racial tensions. They notice the absence of difference and diversity. They notice if people of color are underrepresented. They notice that, right? And they start making sense out of things incorrectly or correctly whether we talk to them about it or not, right? So one example I give in the book is that if my children are living in a segregated city, which most of us live very segregated lives, that's a, that's a truth. That's one of the ways that racism has structured our lives in this country. Let's say they never see a black doctor in their life, right? Or they only, when they see Latino or Latina people, they only see them doing custodial work right? That's, that's the model they see. If I'm not actively teaching them in a proactive way, that it's good that we're, we can talk about difference, differences of, is something we value. And then as they become able, starting to talk about the way difference plays in our world, they'll start to make conclusions on their own, like, oh, only white people can be doctors. Oh, Latino people are, are, are custodial workers. They're never in charge of things. They aren't teachers, right? And I don't want my children drawing those conclusions. I want my children to be active conversation partners with me and be hearing from me in a dialogical way how I want them to make sense out of the world. And so part of the reason that there's no too early is not to say I'm going to tell a two-year-old the same thing I might be able to say to my 10-year-old, but my 10-year-old only grows able and ready to talk in increasingly sophisticated ways about race and racism. If from the very beginning of their life, I'm sort of chattering about difference, talking about color, 
and normalizing for them that we do talk about difference in this family. And then when they start asking questions, I'm like, yeah, let's talk about that question. And it just becomes part of the flow of our family life. That's how we teach our children all kinds of things. We teach them nutrition that way. We teach them about their bodies that way. We teach them about what family is that way. But because white adults have been so ourselves kind of socialized into white silence and and have a lot of anxiety about race, we somehow sort of exempted race as a different category of human knowledge building. And it's just, it's just not. And if we don't talk with our children about it, they'll just breathe in all that smog and it will do things to them that then we have much more unlearning and packing to do with them when they're 10, right? Or 13, when we could be growing a conversation with them all the way along. And so that's really what I think we we need to support each other in learning to do, even if it brings anxiety for us, because it might, because we probably didn't get that ourselves. So we've got a lot of internalized taboos about talking about race. This is excellent. And I want to say, I have tried talking to a three-year-old about police violence. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I th- this is this is it's really interesting because I sort of have taken the let's talk to kids as early as possible, maybe a little bit to the extreme of like, you know, the police have historically treated black and brown people differently than us and have often killed black and brown people when they might not have done that to white kids. Mm-hmm. And I think my my four-year-old was like, what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, I think it freaked her out a little bit. But at the same time, part of my rationalization was like, if you're a, a black or brown kid, you don't get the privilege of like learning about it maybe in a story or, you know, it might happen on your block or you have the talk with your parents where they're like, look, you need yeah. to behave a certain way around the police. Yeah. So there's this sort of like innocence that we as white parents want to grant our kids of like, they shouldn't have to deal with this until they're older, that we don't actually understand that kids of other races are dealing with much earlier, I think. Would Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I do. And I, I really appreciate you asking that because I definitely don't want to be heard as suggesting that never should a four-year-old hear about police police violence, for example. What I think is that if you talk about in the conversation, so I've been in various parts of my life in conversations where in, you know, multiracial gatherings, folks will talk about what and how and when they talk to their kids about what, right? So black parents and grandparents will have really interesting, important conversations about, well, how early do you have the talk? And what exactly do you say? And I, I remember one time being on a, in a multiracial conversation where I was talking about having talk to my kids pretty young about an incidence of police violence and a colleague and now friend of mine who is a, a one of the co-directors of an organization called Embrace Race who is himself a, a black person said I don't actually do that yet because I not to pretend that my child can actually experience innocence in the world but because I want to be cautious about inducing trauma right so I think there's really discerning kinds of conversations parents and caregivers can have about what and how and when but I absolutely agree. Like, so, like, so I used to, f- because I'm involved in activism myself, I started taking my kids to rallies when they were, I mean, I, one of them was on my back as a baby, right? And so I knew my three-year-old was going to be hearing about police violence. And I also knew that I needed to be prepared to talk through that with her. And so like, I would, I remember, and it might've actually been when Michael Brown was killed it, or it might've been when Trayvon Martin was murdered, but I, I remember thinking, 
I'm not going to tell my child this person, this young person was killed, but I am going to say we are here because Black people are being harmed and hurt, and we are against that. We want to stand with others to say we want that to stop. And I knew that I had to be emotionally prepared that she might hear that at the rally, and I had to be prepared to handle that, even though I wasn't ready. I wasn't dying for my three-year-old to kind of have that level of graphic imagery in the, in her head, but I knew it was worth the risk. And and what ended up was in you know a couple of those contexts, some really important conversations where then we would leave and she would start asking me questions, which then helped me know, oh, this is what she's understanding. She didn't pick up on a lot of stuff. And so I was like, oh, she's not intellectually developmentally ready for that. But she's asking me amazing questions about how white people are treated differently that gave us, you know, this three-year-old values-based conversation unfolded. So I think having our kids in spaces and proactively encouraging conversations around injustice And for some of our kiddos, that might mean talking in more explicit ways earlier about actually people being killed. I think parents have to make decisions about that and kids' temperaments can be different too, right? But but I do think, yes, getting our kids into conversations about the realities of injustice really young, even before they can conceptually quite get it, because then we learn how to respond to their questions and they're more inclined to ask us questions. But if we just silence that whole thing, then I'm like, what, we're going to sit them down with their 13 and we're going to suddenly... Like, what are we even going to say at that point, right? Which, if you're listening and you got a 13-year-old, it's still not too, like, do it. But if you got younger kiddos, you really set your the dialogue up more effectively. And it helps because you can really be a partner in your kids' learning over time. So we should not shield them from the realities of injustice. Absolutely not. Let's say there's a listener. They have kids. doesn't really matter what age, but they're like, okay, I haven't been doing this enough. Maybe the parent themselves is sort of uncomfortable with how to bring it up. Maybe they're they're grappling with it themselves. What do you recommend that parent who maybe doesn't fully understand the nuances themselves, but also wants to bring it to their kids? Like, what do you what do you recommend to those parents to sort of start that process of like grappling with it and and talking about it? That is such a good question because it also helps us point out that when I wrote Raising White Kids, I started out thinking, oh, I'm going to write about how we talk to our children, right? And almost immediately, I was like, oh, this is actually also a book about where white adults are at. Because again, this generational legacy thing, if we didn't, there's a developmental process, many, probably most white adults are not developmentally as along as we might be at the point at which then conversations about racism with our kids feel really easy, not easy morally. I mean, they're devastating, but where we have skills, right? So we're actually having to build our own skills while we're trying to teach our kids skills. And so that's really hard. And so again, I kind of want to normalize that not to, we need to not leave it like that, but we, this is part of what we've inherited. So the starting point question, I think for me, it does a little bit, it's a bit age dependent because I think there are so many resources out there now that one of the things we can do is, you know, let's say we have a five-year-old is actually is to, if we're not involved in racial justice organizing, which I think that's one of the best ways to start to teach our children because we're in an experience together where we're not only talking about race and difference, but we're also kind of modeling that like, we actually really care about this. And so we're going to be involved with our community in fighting racism. So I think getting our kids involved ourselves, adults being involved with organizations that are working locally is vitally important. And it's also really developmentally helpful for these conversations. But in addition to that, we can watch something with them or get a book. 
and we can then say, you know what? I've never, we, I think sometimes telling our kids, I'm actually kind of, I wanted to read this book with you because I'm kind of nervous about talking about race. Cause I've never actually done this before. We, we didn't do this in my family and it's really important. Like showing our kids our own vulnerabilities. It's very counterintuitive because we want to be the answer. We want to have all the answers for them. I actually think we can relieve ourselves a lot, a lot of the anxiety if we say, here's, let's do this resource together, whatever it is, depending on the age, right? And that, so finding a resource that's a good age, age appropriate is important. And just saying, I don't, I wanted to read this because I never learned this when I was six and I wanted you to learn it, but I'm also learning it with you. And I'm so excited for you to tell me how you're hearing this because we, I want to talk about this with you, right? And the other thing is, so any starting point like that, just getting a conversation going and saying to yourself, I don't have to have all the answers. I don't even have to have the answers if my kiddo asks me a question. All I need to be, be willing to do is say, oh my gosh, that's a great question. And I don't even know the answer. Can I think about it? And let's talk about it tomorrow. And then coming back, doing a little Googling, right? And, and getting yourself equipped with some more information about what a better answer might be. And then going back and say, hey, you know how you asked me that question yesterday? I didn't like how I answered it or I wasn't sure. And now I taught myself something and I want to tell you what I learned. So that not only are we then learning ourselves, but we're also showing our kids it's okay to keep learning and that learning and being humble about what we don't know is actually, that's important for white people to learn, right? So we're actually modeling all this good stuff when we say something like, wow, that question, I don't even know how to answer it, but I'm going to see if I can learn some things so we can talk about it. But just find a resource, go for it, take a deep breath and say, hey, I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be willing to continue to be in a conversation and be honest and vulnerable about what I don't know. Are some of those resources, do you have any of those on your website or in the book around like places people can turn to for some of those conversation starters or resources? You know, there are some in the back of the book that include kind of some more kind of organizations and parent kind of networks that folks might want to plug into. I do think part of the what I long for is for more white parents and caregivers to grow dialogues with one another about how we do this because we really do need each other. I mean, there's no one right exact answer to any of the developmental questions when it comes to raising anti-racist committed white children. And so I would love to see us growing cultures of parents supporting each other and, and encouraging each other and challenging one another. And so raisingraceconsciouschildren.org is an amazing resource such as that, embracerace.org, which I just mentioned. Some of those are in the back of my book. There's also, if you just, especially in the last year and a half, then if you Google anti-racist books for children and teens, you're going to get not only amazing lists, but they're going to be all broken up for you developmentally. Some of them will have discussion guides. Like you just really, you have to do almost nothing to get some of those great resources because folks have collated so many of them at this point. So I, I would just do that. But Raising Race Conscious Children and EmbraceRace.org are both great connecting parent forums and IntegratedSchools.com for parents who are thinking about how do we stay committed to public schools at a time when segregation is profound in our public school systems. And there's this whole cohort of parents who are saying, we're going to commit to staying in our local public schools, taking on issues of equity and inclusion, but learn how to do that in a way where it's not white parents taking over. And so that integratedschools.org is another great resource is helping white adults think about how we raise children who are good multiracial community members with equity and anti-racist values as part of their lives. I love the 
recommendation of the integratedschools.org. Personally, we have a, a six-year-old going into first grade and, you know, there's sort of like the, yeah, I'm an anti-racist white person. And then it's like, but where's my kid going to go to school? And suddenly all the the anti-racist belief starts to break down. You're like, but wait, it's my child. So she is going to public school. And I think it's, but I'm really glad there's a resource for that because I think it's real when it's your own children. And I yes. think having that commitment to public education is really important. So I'll, I'll check out more of that resource. Yes. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, they're amazing. What are some of the other common fears or resistances that you get from parents about why they don't talk about race or like, you know, can you sort of address some of those common, the, the FAQs for like why people don't do this? You <laughs> bet. Yeah. yeah. The biggest one, I think, and the one that I think this is starting to die, but it's going to be a while longer. The biggest one is still, of course, colorblindness, so-called colorblindness, which the claim is that we, because we believe everybody's equal, color doesn't actually matter. And so we're going to teach our kids that equality is what we value and not to, not to make a thing about difference. That's a pervasive cultural myth in white communities in the United States still. I like to call that a form of white silence because it's never been actual colorblindness and it's not something that communities of color do. And so one of the reasons that I want to really encourage parents to give up that myth is that one, when we say that we value equality and thus we don't notice difference, we are first creating incredible cognitive dissonance in our children because they do see difference. It's just a physical fact and they live in a society in which differences are treated in different ways and they notice that from very, very young. We have a bazillion studies that show that. And so as soon as you tell them, we don't see difference, it doesn't matter, all you've told them is, I'm not a parent or an adult you can talk about this with. Go figure this out on your own. That's what they hear. And so it's like us telling them, oh, yeah, no, you know what? The sky is green and we don't really need to talk about that anymore. And then they go, oh, you know, the sky's really blue. I guess I can't talk to this adult about this anymore. We lose on that front. The second thing is that when we say to them, we value equality and so thus we don't point out, we don't want to talk about difference. We also typically are, the moments when that comes up is usually around people of color. And so what we also sort of are telling them is that like, there's something wrong with difference, which is why we're doing those communities a solid by not talking about it. So they also actually, it's not only that they quickly figure out they can't talk about race with us, that we also are actually telling them that we don't want to notice that thing, which is a very covert way of saying there's something wrong with that thing. So we actually, I think, amp up internalized forms of racism when we do that. And the third thing that we really do that I think is probably the most important is when we just insist like, no, I believe in equality, so we're not going to talk about difference. All We are also basically saying, I am willfully ignoring what African-American communities in particular have made clear now for years and years, which is that their racial identity matters. They want it to be seen, valued, and celebrated. And so when you say, oh, I'm just not going to notice it, you are also just revealing that you're not listening to what the various members of our civic body have been saying for a very long time, not just Black communities, but communities of color all over the country. My difference matters to me. I want it to be seen, honored, and celebrated. When you say that you don't see it, it's not a compliment. It just shows that you actually don't really care about how I self-understand and experience the world. So 
those are three of the problems with it. And of course, we can't do any anti-racist teaching if our kids are breathing in smog and we're like, nope, there's no smog. You can't talk about racism if you aren't noticing difference. So that's one of the FAQs that I think is the biggest. We've just got to actively unlearn colorblindness, so-called colorblindness. And then the second thing I think would, would say that, that comes up a lot is that white parents always ask about family members and extended families because in white extended families, not talking about race, not talking about racism is often encouraged so that we avoid conflict, right? The level of stress in white families since 2016 around politics and civic life and race is like through the roof. And there's a very strong pressure in white families to avoid acknowledging that stress by just like shut it down. Don't talk about it. So what do I do when my child's grandparent says something racist in front of me? Do I take that on and model for my child that actually this is my value? And it's not only my our value as a family, but we're not going to ever trade of conflict avoidance and so-called peace for justice values, right? Being willing to model for our kids anti-racism in our own families, I think is one of the hardest things for white parents. I guess I would say to listeners, part of why this is on the FAQ is that when our kids watch us be silent in the face of anybody's racism, but especially other family members, then every time we tell them we value difference, we value equality, we are a racial justice committed family, they're like, no, we don't. I watched you not say that when there was anyone else in the room. And so we actually undermine our own commitment and credibility. And we also basically leave our children on their own to try and figure any of this out. That's where like lots of us ended up without mentors, right? My parents might've said X, but I never saw them do X. Our kids learn from watching what we do. So families give people a lot of challenge. And I hear that all the time. And I just want to encourage with care and love, like, we have to speak up in our own families. We don't always have to go into a boxing match, although sometimes that's appropriate. <laughs> I don't mean that literally. But but we, our kids need to see us interrupt racism whenever it happens, including in our own families, because otherwise we've just the basic building block that they need is just like we just knock it out from under their feet. What about this fear of the talking about race will make kids say things that are racist, you know, like or something like that? Is that one of the fears that come up often? Yeah, I think it does. What I like to say about that is there are going to be things that kids say that are really, I wouldn't call them racist, but I mean, that could happen too. But I call them conundrums. Like kids developmentally say things that are embarrassing. They do it about all kinds of things. And when they do it about race, it feels very anxiety laden for us. And for lots of good reason, including that it could hurt people of color, right? And so I think it's good for us to be honest that that can happen. And also be real that silence in order to think we might avoid that isn't better, right? So it's better if my kid, and I, I give an example in the book when our kid was, one of our children was much, much younger, they would often, as we were sort of developmentally when kiddos are younger, we sort of think about and encourage both talking about and chattering about and, and just difference like, oh, peach skin and brown skin and dark brown skin and you know, just using lots of different language for difference, as well as starting to teach 
self-claimed categories like African-American and Black and Latinx. And that stuff, those pieces are can be very confusing for children. It's confusing for adults, right? Race is sort of complicated and then put ethnicity in it, right? So when our, our one of our kiddos was younger, we were doing a lot of both, but they were really picking up on you know, skin tone language. And so there was a while where they would, they say, oh, that person is lighter skin and that person is dark skin. And, you know, that's not racist in and of itself, but there was a moment in a family conversation where I was talking about a conversation I had had with someone in my, I think my child was about five or six at the time. And they said, oh, was he a dark skinned person? And of course I thought, oh my gosh, I hope, I'm glad they didn't say that outside the house, right? Because that would sound like a racist comment, right? But it was actually really great that my kiddo had that language. And I, in that moment, and I was glad it happened at home, not in public, but I just said, oh, you know what? Yeah, he was, although he, he, he's identifies as African-American and actually African-American people, some African-American people have very dark brown skin and some African-American people have very light brown skin, right? So I used it as that kind of moment, but those things will happen. If it had happened in public, the world wouldn't have ended. What would have needed to happen is I would need to address and acknowledge the person who heard my child say that, say also still redirect and go, hey, I'm so glad my kiddo is figuring this stuff out because silence will create other forms of racist behavior in public. And so we actually don't get away with it no matter what. And so it's just much better for us to be in a dialogue with our child. So even I could say later, hey, I heard you say this thing and I wanted to tell you how that might have felt to somebody, Right. But if we've just got silence because we're afraid they might end up saying that thing, they're going to do it and we're not even going to know what's going on. So it's just, so I've just, again, it can be, I don't want to say that means it's easy. Our kids do embarrassing and rude things in public all the time. And when race is in the room, it makes it much more difficult. But that's part of parenting. That's what happens when we're parenting. And so we just have to take a deep breath and commit to educating them and walking with them as they grow their developmental understanding. And I think it speaks to the need for us as adults to educate ourselves, because I think learning how to talk just in an adult conversation around race is inherently going to be useful for our, for kids. One analogy, I don't know how useful this is, but around hygiene, like it's almost like imagining that it's difficult to get your kids to brush their teeth at night and in the morning. It's a pain and it's not easy, but it's like you're going to prevent the cavities later. And so it's like, it's almost like we're like, we don't want to deal with the toothbrushing. And so we're just going to pretend like nothing's there. And then your kids have a mouthful of cavities. And you're like, oh, no, I don't know how much exactly. of a great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like that because, yeah. And, they, and also when they're little, they don't know why they're brushing their teeth. Like, why is dad asking me to do this stupid, annoying thing? Right. And we don't presume like, oh, we shouldn't make them brush their teeth until they can intellectually understand the reasons for brushing their teeth. That's a great analogy. And it, it because we make them do things so they can grow their way into doing the things. They can grow their way into understanding why it's important. They can grow into becoming better brushers of their own teeth, right? You know, and so I think that is a great analogy because I really think race, the stakes of race are much, much greater, right? People's lives depend on depend on white parents doing differently with this next generation. Democracy itself might depend a lot on what we do with this next generation, right? But the learning is no different than nutrition. I make my kids eat peas long before I understood why they needed to eat peas, right? I just said, but you got to do it because this is important. This is what we do. We're caring for, we're trying to care for our bodies, right? We're trying to care for our wellness. Anti-racist teaching and parenting is about my own kids' wellness. 
It's also about the wellness of their peers and their fellow members of this civic body, but it's about my own kids' wellness as human beings. It matters that my white kids, I want them to grow anti-racism in their lives because it's better for their humanity. And so I'm going to do that however it lands and as it's messy and complicated and creates anxieties, all those things are just part of the journey of parenting. And it's really, but I want that for them. And so thus I have to be willing to sort of partner with them in that in a really proactive way. I also think it's critical to know, like, I think Robin D'Angelo and others have spoken to this around just because it's a younger generation doesn't mean they're inherently going to be anti-racist just because they're younger or something like, sure, there's going to be some awareness and, but we still have a real duty to like help that generation learn and sort of grow out of some of the stuff that we were taught. You do not learn anti-racism through osmosis. Like it just, it doesn't happen. And so I teach college students. And so I will often explain to folks, like if when, if when we think that you don't know, first of all, how knowledge gets transmitted and capacity for justice committed action, but also like the number of times I've walked into a classroom and said, we're going to talk about race and students of color in my class are like, okay, let's go. And white students look like deer in headlights and they're like begging. Could we talk about abortion instead? And so what does that do? Well, that means students of color go, yeah, these white folks, they don't care because the white students can't have a conversation. And so the, what's experienced is they don't care about us, right? And what they experience then is this hostility that comes from the understandable frustration that white 19-year-olds can't engage on race. And so I will often tell all of my students, I'll give exactly what the scenario I just gave. And I'll say, guess what? We've all set you up. We've set you up to become enemies because we didn't teach calculus to white kids and kids, students of color have been doing calculus, being taught calculus since they were three. And so we got to figure out how to do math together. And that's part of what we've got to intervene in now and get some folks caught up, right? We got to get white kids caught up. But if we just started teaching them younger, they wouldn't have near, nearly the catching up to do, right? My 12-year-old, I wallowed in white guilt in my 20s. That is not going to happen to my older child. Wherever she lands in her own commitments, she's through the white guilt part. It might come back a little bit, but she's not going to wallow in that because she knows that white people can be activists. She knows that white people can show active commitment in solidarity across racial lines. I had to learn that in my 20s. She already knows that. She already does it, you know? And so we can do differently younger and it and it will enable young people to grow up who just show up really differently and teach us a ton along the way. I'm already learning tons from my 10 and 12 year old. Is there anything you're particularly excited about right now? Like that's really giving you juice to get up and do what you do every day? I would say, and I don't, I don't mean this in a Pollyanna way, and I don't mean this in a, yeah, we're going to turn the tide, but I do think it really, I do believe even, so the backlash we're going through right now is horrible and also predictable. I mean, I just read an interview with Ibram Kendi from a couple of weeks ago where he said, like, this is predictable. There's always backlash when we make great momentum on racial justice. So we're experiencing that in the country right now. And that's, it's scary and it's frustrating and it's demoralizing. I am totally still juiced up anyway about the number of white folks that I have seen and personally just in my own circles in the last year and a half who have moved from internal commitments and values that they claim to actually joining an organization or participating in protests. I mean, my local community in Des Moines, Iowa, white clergy 
have been so committed in, and they've been committed for a long time, but it's just shown up in a full new, at a full new level of force in supporting black organizers, black young people in Des Moines who are leading with incredible courage and power and at great cost, but white clergy, like really showing up for movements there and, and the kinds of conversations we are having as a nation conversations like this, there's just so many more of them than we've ever had. And I don't think that is insignificant. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to win everything tomorrow. And I know a lot of people have already sort of stepped back and dropped out from last year. I know that, but that happens. I also know we have started having conversations that are not just going to quit being had. And that gives me a lot of energy. And it just excites me beyond belief, because I think we we're just growing more collective cultures in which young people are both leading and also seeing adults take some risks that we haven't taken before. So I, that feels really good to me. And one of the other questions we typically ask towards the end is, what do you need right now? And how can the listeners help you grow this new economy or next economy? Oh, man, I think how listeners can grow this new economy if there's one thing and I don't, and so I'll say, okay, it's something I need to, if you are feeling jazzed and energized by anything that we, you and I have just talked about Ryan or these, you know, sort of the sort of, if you're feeling elevated around the racial justice, anti-racist conversations that are happening in the country, look around your local community and find out where people of color are collectively organizing in some way and plug in and say, how can I help and be supportive of this work? We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Communities of color are already organized and leading, as has always been true. We need, if you are listening, just where in your local communities, you don't have to do all the things, you can't do all of the things, but you can't, we can all do some of the things. Of course, that's not my quote, and I'm not sure who said it, but plug in into an organization. The sum is greater than its individual parts, and we need each other and organizations need us to show up with our bodies, with our resources, with our time and with our energy. Even if we don't know exactly what we're supposed to do, just show up and say, okay, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Plug in. I love it. One quick aside is I saw some video the other day about one of the biggest dangers to, to this is white fatigue, which is basically white people starting to be like, this is hard. So I'm just going to stop, stop doing it. <laughs> yep. And so I really see what you're talking about is I think as white folks, we have to be aware that there is something of white fatigue and we have to sort of keep showing up in spite of it. Yes. Because I think it is making a difference and it matters. Yeah. It's like running a marathon. You don't just learn to run a marathon by saying, I'm going to do that tomorrow. You run a mile every day and then you run two and then you run three. And pretty soon you get in, sh you get in a kind of shape where that becomes feasible. And it's, it's no different than that. It's saying, I'm going to commit to, I'm going to commit a little bit all the time. And over time, we get better and better at it. And we become less vulnerable to white fatigue. And we also, this is, so this is the promise part I'll leave us with then. When we start to experience really in our bodies, not just as a kind of like, oh, this is the right thing to do. But it is the right thing to do. But when we actually start to experience multiracial community, multiracial connection, interracial relationships that are authentic, I think those of us who are white in our bodies many of us for the first time in our lives start to go, oh, this really is about my own freedom and liberation too. When we can be engaged in, in enough that we experience that it's liberative and it's about our freedom too, it's like being a good kind of addicted. Then you're like, why would I ever stop doing this work? Because my own freedom, the freedom of my children 
is bound up in this work. And then it's not a hard sell anymore. So that starts to happen when you stay in it long enough. It just does. And so I just want to leave that word of encouragement as we start to close. Thank you. And where can folks find out more about your work and all the different things you're involved in, in website or socials or anything like that? You bet. So my website is jenniferharvey.org. There's some stuff there. I am sort of on Twitter. I'm not very good at it all the time. I go in sort of at Dr. Jen Harvey. And I also have a Facebook page, Jennifer Harvey. You can you can find me on Facebook as well. So I would love to connect in any of those ways. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jennifer Harvey, for being on the show. And we should do this again. This, I could keep going for another hour. So <laughs> it's great to speak with you. Let's do it. Thanks, Ryan. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.